Well, good morning. Uh, good to see everyone here this morning. I think the last time that uh, I spoke, maybe in back like in February, I think back then Brother Luke came up and gave me an introduction. I get no introduction today. I'm feeling a little cheated. <laughs> uh, but uh, just so you know, I'm Charles McConnell. I'm uh, <laughs> serve as one of the elders here. I've uh, been here for about, oh, I don't know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 12 years now. So anyway, that's who I am. <laughs> uh, good to see you all here this morning. Um, got some very uh, special people uh, here in the audience that have come out for support, and I am uh, greatly appreciative of them. Uh, and my uh, son Charles and his family have moved back into the uh, Dallas area, and so I'm so happy to have them in the area, and they've come to, to share with us this morning. And then, of course, y'all remember uh, Tashe. Tashe used to be here with us for a number of years. They kind of live on the other side of Fort Worth now, so they're a little ways away, but uh, some of the finest people on earth, some of the finest people that I know, and uh, so you'll, uh, you can greet them in the name of the Lord Jesus. Um, we sang songs this morning, and I don't remember exactly uh, just off the top of my head how it all went, but uh, uh, one song said, uh, I'm daily constrained uh, to be a, a debt to grace, and uh, how true those words are. Um, you know, we sing the song, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me, and uh, I can sing that song and say amen to those words daily. Uh, amazing grace, uh, how sweet the sound. And so I'm uh, thankful and, uh, for, for the grace of Almighty God. Um, I'm probably going to be brief this morning. Um, I just want you all to know, I think that uh, I've come to find out that uh, brevity is my spiritual gift. And uh, so, you know... Uh, I, I, I want to exercise it. Everybody doesn't have that gift. I want y'all to know that. Uh, you know, I, I think y'all do know that by now, that everybody don't have that gift. But I've, I do have the spiritual gift of great, uh, brevity. And so uh, I just want, <laughs> I'm just, uh, I want to share that with the church. That's, uh, I think Paul said that the, the gifts were given for the benefit of the whole church. And so I want y'all to be blessed by my uh, gift of brevity uh, today. Um, Let's just say a little prayer before we uh, get started this morning. Uh, Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you, God. We lift you up to the highest place, Father. Give you praise, glory, and honor, for you are worthy. Heavenly Father, we just pray, dear God, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, would be acceptable in your sight. Father, we just pray, God, that just uh, uh, maybe a few words that are spoken today uh, might lift us up and touch the hearts of some, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Man. Well, uh, our study today brings us really to the close of our study of John's letters. We looked at John's three uh, letters, and uh, we're going to just kind of give a little bit of background. For me, uh, just seeing the background, the context, the backdrop of what is written just really helps me to understand some of the things that, uh, that we read about. Uh, and, of course, Terry, at the very beginning of our study of John's letters, gave a little bit of this, but it's just a little bit of a really rehearsal of some of those things that we've talked about. Uh, of course, this letter was written by uh, John, the beloved apostle of Jesus Christ. And, of course, at the time of this writing, John is serving as 
a uh, elder or perhaps pastor of the church in Ephesus. Uh, now, John is probably at this time the last living of the 12 original apostles. Uh, history and church tradition tells us that all the others have been martyred for the cause of Jesus Christ. Now, by the time that John writes these letters, it's probably been somewhere at least around 40 to 50 years uh, since the cross event. And because of that, there's no doubt that John has seen a great deal of change uh, since he stood at the foot of the cross of Jesus. Of course, John has seen the gospel go forth from the city of Jerusalem to spread and take root throughout uh, a good part of the Roman Empire. Of course, you know, we go back and you look at Acts chapter 2 uh, when the gospel was first preached, and it started right there in Jerusalem, and it spread from there. And once again, by now, we've seen Paul and others take the gospel uh, throughout a good part of the Roman Empire. Uh, then also, not only that, has he seen the spread of the gospel, but he's also seen the rise of persecution. You know, the earliest Christian uh, persecutions uh, began, uh, it was from the Jews who were really fighting to preserve uh, Judaism and the religion of the Old Covenant. But then by the time that John writes these letters, uh, we've seen that some of the uh, Roman empires, have, emperor, excuse me, have risen up to launch persecution uh, against Christians. And those uh, persecutions, some of them were local, and then some of them were uh, widespread throughout the empire. Well, then also, not only that, uh, those changes uh, were evident, but also some of the other changes were the rise of false doctrine. And of course, we've talked just a lot about that during our study. As been mentioned in our study, men began teaching things that challenged the truths about Jesus Christ himself, about who he was and about some of the things that he taught even, even about whether Jesus Christ had even come in the flesh. Well, these are some of the changes that John had seen during the course of time that has passed since he stood at the foot of the cross. And all of this provides a context for these three letters that John has written. Now, the first two letters that John wrote were probably more general in nature. In other words, uh, 1 John was probably written to a number of churches, probably within the region of Ephesus or the region of Asia Minor. And then, of course, 2 John, which we studied last week, was probably written to a particular church that John referred to as the elect lady and her children. But then this third letter of John is more personal, as it's written to a Christian by the name of Gaius. Now, we don't really know anything about Gaius uh, other than what is written in this letter. Uh, I do want to say that there are uh, probably about four other men by the name of Gaius that are mentioned in the New Testament, uh, but we don't have any evidence that connects them to this Gaius that John writes to. And basically what that should tell us is that Gaius is about like, uh, about like the uh, name uh, Michael today, that it's just a common name back during that time in the Roman Empire. And so let's uh, turn our attention to a little bit of the text. In uh, 3 John, verses 3 and 4, John writes this. After his introduction to, uh, to Gaius, he says, I rejoice greatly 
Uh, when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now, in those passages, John uh, commends Gaius for walking in the truth, and he also expresses his great joy to hear about his children also walking in the truth. Now, I think when John refers to his children here, he's probably talking either about individuals that he's personally converted to Christ or maybe about uh, churches that have remained faithful to the teachings of Jesus. Uh, either way, uh, these people are walking in, or rather, they are living out uh, the truth that God has revealed to us. They are walking in, they are living in truth, they are expressing in their personal lives the truths uh, uh, that Jesus, uh, that God has revealed to us. Now, you remember last week that Brother Luke preached uh, a really an excellent lesson uh, about truth, and I'm not going to even attempt to preach all of that over again. However, I do want to say amen, and I do want to reemphasize the fact that, you know, there is an objective truth that God has revealed to us uh, through Scripture and perhaps even through nature itself, God has revealed his truth to us. Uh, and, uh, you know, we need to understand that uh, that truth is still prevalent today. It still has not changed. The truths and the fundamentals that God revealed way back then and given to us in Scripture are still true today. And that's regardless of what uh, the world around us says, and that's regardless of what our society says. There is fundamental truth that touches every aspect of our lives. There is truth about God, about who he is, and about his nature. There's truth about his son, Jesus Christ, that we can understand. And this is one of the things that John himself was fighting for, the truth about Jesus Christ and about his true nature. Uh, there's fundamental truth about right and wrong. Uh, you know, we don't have to uh, guess about what right, what's right and what's wrong because there is an objective truth that God has revealed about that. There is truth about sexuality. There is truth about love. There is truth about marriage. And on and on and on, God has revealed his truth to us and we can know it. And beloved, today we can walk in it just as the early Christians did, just as Gaius did. You know, I would imagine that if John rejoiced greatly to find men and women walking in truth over 2,000 years ago, I'm sure that he would be overwhelmed with joy today to see believers living in a world such as ours where truth is being greatly challenged on every hand to see us, even here at Irving Church, even here in this community, uh, walking in truth and proclaiming that same truth to the world that we live in. Now, it seems like a part of this walking in truth that John commends Gaius for, uh, it may have uh, something to do with his willingness to show hospitality to some brothers and sisters who have traveled his way. Uh, John tells us in verse 6 that these men have testified before the church of Gaius' love. Now, 
once again, uh, throughout our study, we've talked a lot about love. John speaks about, a lot about love. Matter of fact, uh, it's often said that he is the apostle of love. In 1 John, John talked a great deal about love, and above all things, we learned in 1 John 4 and 8 that God is love. God is love personified, and all that he does is out of love for his creation. John also taught us that love isn't about just feelings and emotions, but love is manifested or it is revealed uh, in our actions, the things that we do, the things that we say. In 1 John 3, 16 and 18, you remember he expressed, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. And so what that tells us and what we can know is that genuine love is reflected in what we do, uh, how we treat one another, how we treat the people that we say that we love. Love is expressed there. We know that love is sacrificial. We know that love is giving because John said uh, if we see our brother or sister in need and uh, we don't uh, reach out and try to heal those needs, then how does the love of God really dwell in us. So we know that love is sacrificial and giving. Well, the love and faithfulness to truth uh, is exemplified in Gaius's willingness to show hospitality to strangers. Now, these men or these men and women that uh, Gaius takes in are Christians. They are uh, perhaps traveling preachers or we might call them missionaries or even evangelists who are going from town to town sharing the good news of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Now, keep in mind that in John's world, uh, there was no television, no radio, no newspaper, uh, no social media or smartphones or any of those things. And so if people throughout the world, if people throughout the empire were going to hear about Jesus, it was dependent upon Christians uh, traveling from city to city and preaching wherever they had an audience. And so John says that these brothers and sisters went out for the sake of the name of Jesus, and they would take nothing from the Gentiles or nothing from non-believers, non-Christians. And this was probably because uh, of the threat of persecution that was uh, prevalent during that time. Of course, if the wrong people uh, knew who these folks were and why they were there, uh, it could certainly endanger their mission. Uh, but even so... Uh, we know that Gaius had never met these people, yet he opened up his home to them in the spirit of true Christian love and hospitality. Now, you know, uh, the New Testament in particular has quite a bit to say about hospitality. We can know that hospitality is an act of kindness and generosity that involves the giving of ourselves and giving of our means whether it be opening up our homes to give a, uh, someone a place to stay or serving a meal uh, or maybe just a place to take a shower or uh, helping them with money for traveling expenses, whatever the case may be, all of these are acts of hospitality. And the Bible tells us that as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, 
we ought to show hospitality. Notice Romans 12 and verse 13, Paul said, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, he said, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. You know, a lot has been said about that passage, about this uh, entertaining of angels unawares, and who are these people, these angels, or whatever the case may be. But the, pa the point of the passage is that we show hospitality to strangers, demonstrating hospitality. Now, I think we have to understand that hospitality is not always an easy thing. You know, uh, for some of us, um, there might need to be some growth in this area of showing and demonstrating hospitality, uh, especially to strangers, to people that we uh, have never met before. Um, I know that, um, you know, prior to coming here to Irving, um, I traveled to um, other churches and spoke for them from time to time. I know Terry is very familiar with that and uh, perhaps even Luke. Uh, but, you know, in my experience with that, uh, generally speaking, a lot of times I would stay with people that I'd never met before. And they'd open up their homes to me. And by the time I left, I felt I'd feel like we'd known each other for years. And, uh, you know, and during my time in those various towns, uh, different ones would invite me over for dinner. And once again, people I'd never met before, who'd never seen me before, and uh, yet they were very generous uh, in their hospitality. And so this may be something that uh, some of us may really need to grow in, but you know, uh, others really practice hospitality very effortlessly. Uh, and I believe that hospitality even might be a spiritual gift. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's interesting to me that in uh, the Romans 12 passage and also in 1 Peter uh, 4 and 9, the context surrounding those passages is spiritual gifts. If you look at 1 Peter 4 and uh, 9 and 10, he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. I also think it's interesting that uh, Peter specifies that we ought to show hospitality uh, without grumbling. <laughs> you know, uh, once again, I think that shows us that hospitality may sometimes be a difficult thing to do. And it tells us that it is sacrificial. And, uh, you know, that he says that we should do it without grumbling. Maybe, maybe that, uh, that should say something to those of us who are the recipients of this hospitality, that we should make it easy on those who demonstrate it to us. In other words, um, maybe uh, make up the bed before you leave or uh, help to wash dishes before you go, uh, something of those nature, but just make it easy because uh, that he says do it without grumbling means that, you know, sometimes it can be hard. Uh, and it, once again, it may require some growth in some of us, but know that it is a part of discipleship. I want you to read one more passage just to show how uh, important this thing is. You know, Jesus said uh, toward the end of his ministry in Matthew 25 and verse 34, he said, then the king will say to those on the right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, 
and you welcome me. Jesus was talking about hospitality there and receiving people who are in need. Well, let me move on. I want to talk a little bit about uh, verse 8 of this passage. In chapter, verse, verse 8, uh, let's see. Uh, well, that's not it. And y'all can see my uh, exceptional skill in PowerPoint there. Well, I think it looks okay there, but in the back it looks kind of messed up. But uh, anyway, uh, uh, in verse 8, uh, uh, John said, Therefore we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. In other words, uh, John was telling um, Gaius that it was good or it was right for us to support these traveling preachers, these traveling missionaries, whoever they might be. And I think that this is an important principle here in this text. Uh, John is talking about Christians opening up their homes to traveling evangelists, but the overarching principle is that when we show hospitality or when we give of our means for the work of the kingdom, we become fellow workers for the truth. Now, I really want us to understand this morning that this applies even today and even now. You know, most of us have never, may never, take in a stranger or anything like that or a traveling preacher or anything like that, but yet and still, you give of your means on a regular basis for the cause of Jesus Christ for the church. And I understand that so much of what we give goes towards things like these facilities, you know, uh, things like air conditioning and uh, heating and lights and insurance and all of those type of things. But, you know, personally, I'm really okay with that because I know that this is a place from which truth goes forth. And, you know, I want to be a part of that. We should want, desire to be a part of that. Uh, we have ministers here on salary, and we know who those men are men who are well-trained, and they are devoted to following Jesus. I've said this many times before, but, you know, these guys, these men, they could probably make twice as much as they make here if they went out in the corporate world and got a job. But they have chosen to give themselves to the preaching and teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, beloved, I want you to know that when we give, we become fellow workers with the truth. We are participating in the kingdom of heaven. We are sharing in a work that is life-changing. We are sharing in a work that is world-changing, a work that is eternal. And beloved, that's something worth getting involved in. And so John says that we ought to support people like these. We ought to support efforts like these. We ought to support anything that goes rightfully into building up the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, our training in uh, inductive Bible study, we talked a lot about that over the past year and a half or so, has taught us that, among other things, uh, we should look for contrast within the text of Scripture. And perhaps the most obvious contrast that we see in this letter is between uh, Gaius and this man by the name of Diotrephes. Notice what he says in verses 9 and 10. He says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, excuse me, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. And so if I come, 
I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. I want you to notice uh, the charges that John levies uh, against this brother or this man, Diotrephes, however you want to consider it. Uh, he likes to put himself first. Uh, he doesn't acknowledge John's authority. He speaks out against John. He refuses to receive those traveling missionaries. He stops anyone who tries to show them hospitality, and furthermore, he even puts them out of the church. I believe when we look at this, we can see that this individual is the epitome of selfishness, arrogance, and divisiveness. And Scripture gives us warning about people like these. Very briefly, in Romans uh, 16, verses 17 and 18, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught and avoid them. He says, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And he says, by, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Notice that Paul says that these individuals, they are creating obstacles uh, that are contrary to the doctrine that has been taught. Uh, notice also he says that uh, those persons, that they do not serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but rather they are serving themselves. And I think that we can see that in the things that John writes about this Diotrephes. He is a selfish, self-serving individual. Now, a lot could be said about this type of behavior within the body of Christ. You know, some of us have come out of a church heritage where we've seen this firsthand. We've seen churches led by men who love to be up front and in charge. We've seen congregations that wouldn't welcome other Christians who didn't believe everything the same way that they did. We've experienced churches that would separate themselves from other churches for really uh, no valid reason. And this type of brokenness in people and in churches, beloved, still exists even today. And we need to pray for healing. We need to pray that God would intervene. But I want to talk a little bit more about the fact that Diotrephes would not acknowledge John's authority. Consider who John was. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was one of Jesus' hand-selected disciples that would serve as apostle. That is, one of his ambassadors, if you will. His position and authority were God-given, and that meant something. You know, it's no wonder that Paul would often begin his letters by saying something like, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. He wanted people to understand that his position and his authority came from heaven and not from men. Yet, because of his arrogance and his self-centeredness, this Diotrephes basically said, I don't care who John is. I'm going to run the church my way, and I'm going to do my own thing, regardless of what John says. Now, we might think about how ungodly Diotrephes' uh, behavior and attitude was, 
But we need to understand that the truth is that this attitude that is so prevalent in our world and in our society today, so many people do not want to recognize or to submit to authority. And we see it all the time. Just as an example, I was reading in an article some time ago about the rise of violence in air travel. And uh, it seems like it corresponded, of course, with the, uh, the pandemic when, uh, you know, air travelers were uh, required to wear a mask. You know, and, um, you know, uh, a lot of people had a big problem with following really a relatively simple rule. You know, I mean, and I understand, I mean, nobody really likes wearing a mask. I didn't like wearing one. But, you know, really, uh, it was really a simple request. And, you know, a flight generally typically only lasted for an hour or two. And so it really wasn't that big a deal. And, you know, uh, we understand that uh, the rule of mask wearing has been gone for um, a couple, almost a couple of years now. But there's still this rebellious attitude among a lot of travelers that says, you know, basically I can do what I want to do. Now, we have to understand there's a clear line of authority that extends from the captain and it flows through his flight attendants. And so on that aircraft, they're in charge. And, you know, we should understand that. I mean, they've been trained. Uh, they receive their authority essentially from the captain and from the FAA and that type of thing. Yet there are a lot of people who get on the airplane who think, I can do what I want to do. The flight attendant says, okay, uh, you're, no, your bag is too big to go up there. You're going to have to check it. Well, I don't want to check it. I don't want to check it. And they'll put up a big fuss about it. It's time to close your laptop. Well, no, I'm going to keep my laptop open and continue to working because that's what I want to do. People in general, a lot of times, just don't want to submit to authority. But we, not to, we need to understand that the principles of authority and submission are God-ordained principles. And they're not in place to keep us under bondage or to keep us from living a joyful life. But on the contrary, God has placed those principles in place because, uh, because the submission to authority is because he loves us. And rule and authority are in place to maintain order in our lives and to keep us from undue chaos and things like that. God knows what's best for us. Notice what Paul says in Romans 13, uh, verses 1 and 2. I think I got a slide for that. Uh, he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Notice a principle that, uh, that Paul states there. First of all, he says, there is no authority except from God. So basically, anybody who's been placed in a position or a role of authority, that's God-ordained. And I'm not talking about tyrannical rule and authority or anything like that, but proper rule and authority in the proper place is God-ordained. And he says, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And so this thing just goes beyond the flight attendant, but you are resisting the authority that is appointed by God. Submission to God ordained rule and authority is part of Christian discipleship and should begin in the home. 
Children should be taught to honor their parents and to have proper respect for teachers and law enforcement and for those who are in authority. Submission to authority is born through humility. And unless we are willing to humble ourselves and realize that I'm not the center of the universe and I don't have to be first all the time, then we will probably not honor authority anywhere. Not in the home, not on the job, not in the classroom, and maybe not even in the church. And ultimately, we will find ourselves not even giving God the respect and honor that he rightfully deserves. Peter said it this way. He said, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time he may exalt you. Well, as John begins to close this brief letter, he gives Gaius a, a wonderful bit of wisdom, saying, Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but imitate good. You know, when I read that, you know, it sounds kind of something like what my mom would say to me, you know, before I left the house as a teenager. You know, do the right thing. Uh, don't, don't follow after uh, the bad boys out there, but do the right thing. Do what is good. You know, a few words can really say so much. You know, I remember back when I was working for the airline, uh, we had a term called, called cherry picking. Or sometimes we would say something like, you know, pick the low-hanging fruit. And basically what that meant was, if you have a choice, you know, pick the easy job. You know, pick the easy job. Don't take a hard job, but pick the easy one. And uh, I think, generally speaking, it's easier to do the wrong things than it is to do the right thing. And that's why we so often get caught up in bad behaviors, because it's easy. It's easy to get caught up in the wrong thing. It's easy to follow after that which looks good, but it's not good. And so John urges us here not to imitate the bad behaviors that we see around us. Don't be like diatrophies or don't imitate any bad behavior, but rather that which is good. It basically says, as I close today, really we should reach high as Christ followers. Don't just accept the low-hanging fruit, but reach high and do the good things in life, the things that God has appointed that are good and right and true. I'll leave you with that this morning. Thank you. Thank you.